Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to talk about things mainly before, but also a little bit after the, uh, the topics that uh, Professor Yaoub focused on. I'm going to talk a little bit about Iraq and uh, Arab nationalism, resistance to foreign the history of resistance to foreign occupation in Iraq, um, and how that fits into uh, uh, how I see both this war and especially the post-war in Iraq. Um, but I'll start a little bit by talking about the war itself. Um, whatever justifications were given for the war um, by the Bush administration, it seems pretty clear that the approach to this war w was predicated on a set of assumptions in Washington uh, on the part of the key policymakers. And the key policymakers were very clearly a cabal of civilians at the top of the Pentagon, the people around the Vice President, a number of people in the National Security Council. Um, in other words, the President, the Vice President, Secretary Rumsfeld, um, and their closest aides were the ones who made the basic decisions. And it is these people, I think, who shared this set of assumptions. And there were three assumptions that they seemed to uh, hold. And they repeated them so often that I think it's pretty clear that this is how they understood the situation in Iraq. The first assumption was that the Iraqi regime had no internal support whatsoever. It ruled essentially um, by repression, fear, terrorizing the population, and had no domestic power base. The second assumption was that the Iraqi populace, which loathed this regime universally, would welcome liberation by foreigners, and that what this would therefore be would be a war of liberation. Thirdly, um, there followed from these first two assumptions the assumption that it would be possible for the United States to easily and rapidly remove this regime, easily and rapidly install a new regime, and that all of this could be done um, with the maintenance of American presence in Iraq, which would be easily tolerated by the Iraqi people. Now, when I suggest that these assumptions were shared by the people at the very top, the people at the top of the ranks of the Pentagon, the people in the National Security Council around President Bush, the people in Vice President Cheney's office, um, I don't mean that there were not differences in Washington, uh, even in understanding Iraq. There were, in fact, differences. Um, there were differences, for example, with the uh, uniformed military. Uh, which understood perfectly well that there was a much more serious challenge involved in Iraq than um, was proposed by the civilians who, by our Constitution, um, in fact, have authority over them. But the uniformed military really wasn't able to say very much. This was understood clearly by the professionals at the State Department, many of whom had spent large parts of their lives in Iraq and understood full well that however much the regime was hated, it also had some support. Finally, it was understood by people in military intelligence and the Defense Intelligence Agency, people in the CIA, people in the NSA, people in what is humorously called the intelligence community. Um, it gives you the sense of a touchy-feely group. Um, the intelligence community understood perfectly well that things were a little more complex than that. Moreover, but those, those views really had absolutely no access to uh, uh, the, the top levels. They were rigorously, systematically shut out. And you could not say in Washington without being laughed out of the room that 
you know, maybe some people will support this regime, or maybe um, the American troops won't be welcomed with flowers and roses and, and rice. You couldn't say it uh, before the war started in Washington. It was, it was unsayable, pretty much, certainly in a, in, if you want it to be taken seriously in policy circles. So everyone who knew better, that is to say the thousands of people within the bureaucracy whom we've paid hundreds of millions of dollars to train all of their lives to understand the Middle East, they couldn't say what they knew to be true. Um, but there were differences in Washington about how to go about this, and in particular about what should replace the Ba'athist regime, which these assumptions said would crumble almost automatically, about how long the United States should stay in Iraq, and about what to do afterwards with Iraqi oil resources, and how Iraq should be oriented in the future after this uh, rapid, easy, happy, w much welcomed regime change that the uh, that the, the first group talked about. The first group, obviously, uh, as you know, uh, were victims of a sort of neoconservative neo ideology which saw the world in very simple terms. These are people who were, I'm sure, very intelligent. They are very intelligent, but they're not terribly knowledgeable about the real world. They live in a world of their own. And um, for them, saying all of this um, was, 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 was most unwelcome. Um, in any case, even though there were debates over these end, these end game issues, how Iraq should be oriented in the future, what to do with the Iraqi oil resources, how long the United States should stay, and so forth, um, underlying all these discussions of the end game um, were these same three assumptions that I've talked about, that the regime has no support, that Iraqis really wanted the Americans to come and liberate them, and that the United States could easily replace this regime. Um, I'm not talking about, I'm not mentioning the rhetoric about democracy, which came very late to this policy debate in, in Washington. It came late because it really was added almost as an afterthought when it was realized that everything else that was adduced as a, as a justification for the war didn't seem to be selling very well with American public opinion. So democracy was thrown into the mix. And this, of course, was uh, give, a, give a frisson to the neocons because they've suddenly become Wilsonians and they want to remake the world in a democratic way, they say. But if you look carefully, they're the same people who want to install permanent military bases. And the idea that people would have democratic governments and want foreign bases in their countries, I don't, I don't think has ever been put together by these people. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. The fact that Iraq has a 60% Shia majority, these people might have friendly feelings towards neighboring Iran, which is the Beth Noir of the neocons. These things are never talked about by them. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about Iraq. I think the thing that can be said clearly after what in two days will be four weeks of war, however the war ends, um, is that all of these three assumptions have been proven or are going to prove very soon to have been false. Um, clearly, although this regime was loathed by many, many Iraqis, I would guess probably a majority of Iraqis, um, it is a regime that has a very large base of support, maybe millions of people, certainly hundreds of thousands. There are hundreds of thousands of Ba'ath Party members. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the security services. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the top ranks of the army. Um, put those together and you're talking about millions of people, including their families. Now, some of them may be secret anti-Ba'athists. Some of them may, in the privacy of their own bathrooms, not like Saddam Hussein, but they're all deeply imbricated with this regime. And um, clearly, some of these people have been fighting. They have been fighting very successfully, um, but clearly um, the assumptions that the regime had absolutely no 
internal support and would fall like, quote, a house of cards, which was a term bandied about Washington, that this would be a cakewalk. All of this has proven to be false. The United States obviously can go anywhere it wants in Iraq, but it, it seems that there's not a city in Iraq that American forces are able to stay in after dark. Um, so clearly somebody doesn't want them there. And it would appear that this hardcore of support for the regime, which is not a few dozen people, but obviously tens and tens and tens of thousands of people spread all over the country, was something that simply wasn't taken into account by these, um, by these, uh, in, term, in, in, in these assumptions. The second thing that t turns out to have been the case is that both pro and anti-Baathist Iraqis were wary of U.S. intentions. I have not heard one report from Iraq, not one journalistic report from Iraq, inside Iraq, by people, but by serious reporters, John Burns and Garrels, especially the British and the French press, uh, which does not say, in the same breath, uh, when minders are not present, we don't like our government, but we don't want the United States to stay. I have not heard one single report which doesn't say that. So clearly, both those who were in favor of the regime and those who were against the regime were wary of U.S. intentions, um, looked skeptically at the invasion, and Clearly, the United States did not get much of an initial welcome in Iraq. There may that may well change as time goes on, but up to this point, it's pretty clear that um, even those who wanted um, the regime changed did not welcome the idea that this take place at the hands of foreigners. At least many people didn't feel that way. Finally, it is by now, I think, becoming clear that replacing the Iraqi regime will indeed be very, very difficult, and that a military, American military occupation of Iraq is going to be difficult onerous and perhaps costly in terms of lives, it certainly will be costly in terms of treasure. It's going to be a very expensive business. Why were these assumptions so faulty? Well, first of all, nobody paid any attention to Iraqi history, very clearly. And when I say nobody, I don't mean the dedicated professionals within our government who know perfectly well uh, about the history and politics and, and, so, and society and religions of Iraq. I'm talking about the people who made the decisions. They clearly paid no attention to Iraqi nationalism, no attention to Iraq's experience with foreign occupations, about which I'm going to talk a little bit in a minute. Secondly, the neoconservatives in Washington in particular, the ones who run the vice president's national security staff, who dominate uh, President Bush's National Security Council, and who uh, 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 infest the top civilian ranks of the Pentagon, all were too deeply enamored of their dear friends in the Iraqi uh, exile movement. Um, people like Ahmed Chalabi, a man uh, uh, fondly known by some as the thief of Baghdad, even though his grand larceny took place in Amman. Um, he's a man who's wanted for um, embezzlement of tens of millions of dollars in Jordan. Uh, a man who apparently has no following whatsoever inside Iraq. Again, if you read any kinds of reports, it's very clear that Chalabi is a totally discredited figure, but he is beloved of the Paul Wolfowitzes and the Richard Pearls and the, and the uh, uh, others, others with influence in the Pentagon and, and in the Vice President's office. And so, unfortunately, instead of listening to the people who we've paid all their lives to study Iraq, uh, uh, we listen to these people. Finally, um, there, was, there was too much ideology and much too little uh, uh, study of uh, the realities uh, in, in, in Iraq. Um, vapors, I think these people were afflicted by the vapors in Washington. They came to believe their own propaganda 
about Iraq. It was fine to try and sell the American people on this war and pretend it would be easy because that's the only way you could lie to them and get them into the war. But it wasn't fine to believe your own ridiculous propaganda and unfortunately they apparently did. Um, I'm not sure that that's going to have much of an effect on the course of the war, but if that doesn't change, I think it will have a great effect on the course of the post-war. Um, and I think that uh, if this massive ignorance of Iraqi history and, and, and politics and society continues, um, we're going to have real problems. Let me talk a little bit about this history because I think it's going to have even more of an effect on the post-war situation than it has had uh, thus far. Iraq has had a very long and difficult experience with foreign occupation and foreign uh, intervention in the 20th century. Even before the state of Iraq existed, it was created as a League of Nations mandate, as you know, um, after World War I, when there were still three Ottoman provinces of Basra, Baghdad, and uh, Mosul um, that were part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, it was clear that this was not going to be an easy country or region or place or whatever you want to call it to conquer. In 1914, when the British invaded at the beginning of World War I in August with Indian troops, um, who landed on the Fowl Peninsula and very quickly managed to take Basra, something that the British Army hasn't been able to do for these last four weeks. Um, there was extremely strong resistance by Ottoman forces, which it should be noted were almost entirely made up of Iraqi conscripts. Now, uh, there, is a, there is a nationalist conceit in the Arab world that the Ottoman Empire was an alien, foreign occupation, blah, blah, blah. This is a new modern interpretation that Arab nationalism has brought in in the last couple of generations. In fact, the Ottoman Empire lasted for 400 years, which is twice as long as our republic has, has lasted in the Arab world. And it was a fully, it fully integrated the Arab provinces. And Ottoman troops, uh, including many, many officers uh, who, who fought in Iraq, were in fact Iraqis. The great majority of the soldiers and even a very large proportion of the officers. They fought very well. It took the British Army, with the superiority that Britain had, two years to fight their way up the Tigris, about halfway of the distance from Basra to Baghdad, to a place called Kut, where the Ottoman army surrounded and ultimately forced the surrender of the entire British force. Of 33,000 troops, almost none survived this campaign. Britain lost 33,000 killed in the first couple of years of this war. This was in 1916. General Townsend, who commanded that force, surrendered with his soldiers, and almost all of them died in captivity. It was only in 1917 that a much larger force, after three years, managed to take Baghdad. And in so doing, uh, the British commander, General Maud, proclaimed that he had not come to conquer, but rather to liberate Iraq. Iraqis probably remember this, um, even if we don't. Uh, in Britain, they remember it. Um, uh, I've seen eight or nine mentions just in the Financial Times of General Maud's speech. I, don't, I haven't seen it ever mentioned in the American press. But even if we don't remember the history, the people to whom it happened, I promise you, probably do. In fact, Britain had absolutely no intention of liberating Iraq. Before Maud even arrived in Baghdad, Britain and France had agreed on the Sykes-Picot tr uh, Treaty, which partitioned the Middle East between them. And the southern part of Iraq was going to be under direct British control. The northern part of Iraq was to be under uh, the, the central part of Iraq was to be under indirect British control, and the northern part, Mulsad, was to be under French control, though the British and the French later did a swap, and the British got back Mulsad. Um, British initially tried to rule Iraq the way they ruled India, essentially direct rule with British district officers right down to the local 
local uh, regional governments. Um, in a very heavy-handed fashion, uh, it, was, it was proclaimed that uh, Iraq was a fertile region which could well be exploited by uh, the British Indian Empire, which treated Iraq as if it was just a further extension of the Indian Empire, which had already expanded into Burma and to Nepal, to the Gulf region, and was now, uh, in effect, expanding into Iraq. And there was talk of settling as, much as, as many as a million Indian peasants in Iraq um, uh, to exploit the riches uh, of, the, of the Mesopotamian river valleys. Um, this kind of stuff didn't go over very well with the Iraqis, uh, who had elected people to parliament since the 1870s, who had had a f elected mayors, who had a free press, who had a relatively developed political culture, who considered themselves sophisticated people and were basically being treated as if they were serfs, as if they had absolutely no voice in their own future. And so, not surprising, there was a revolt. This revolt would have probably driven the British out of Mesopotamia were it not for two things, the use of poison gas and the use of planes. Were it not for the RAF and gas, Britain probably would have lost control of Iraq in 1920. But by assiduously bombing and gassing the Iraqis, killing about 10,000 people, almost all of them civilians, and I have some hair-raising accounts of how that was done, bombing villages, bombing flocks, bombing herds, bombing civilians, but I won't, I won't raise your hair with it. Um, Britain managed to retain control of Iraq. However, it was realized in London that perhaps they had gone just a bit too far, and perhaps direct rule wasn't going to work. And so Winston Churchill, who at that stage was colonial secretary, um, made a decision in Cairo at the Cairo conference to institute what in British colonial experience was called indirect rule, finding some intermediary who would serve as a buffer between the population and the British and through whom the British could rule. And the British had a candidate because someone who they had uh, helped to uh, come to power in Syria had been kicked out by the French. This was Emir Faisal. He was sitting around without anything to do. So the British put him, the king of Syria, on the throne of Iraq. He became the king of Iraq. They organized a referendum. Anybody who didn't like it was exiled to the seashells. It was an exemplary example of democracy in action. The referendum produced the desired result. Uh, those who didn't want to vote for the king could go to the seashells. Those who wanted to vote for the king could. Those who stayed home, nobody paid any attention to. Um, the end result was a regime which, which was given its independence in 1932, which um, uh, joined the League of Nations in the same year, but which was still very much under British control in many respects. Importantly, Britain still controlled Iraqi oil resources, and Britain still had bases in Iraq. This was bitterly resented by the Iraqis, um, and they did everything within their power to expand the margin of their independence. They always clung, for example, to the terms of the treaty that had been imposed upon them in 1932 and said, well, under the treaty you can only do this and under the treaty you can only do that. And it's amusing to read the accounts of the British diplomats as they, as they reacted to these Iraqi attempts to um, uh, exercise the treaty rights that the British had given them in this treaty. Th this came to a head in 1941 when the British decided that they wanted to land troops in Iraq again and British uh, troop ships arrived in Basra. British ambassador, high commissioner, I should say, handed a dispatch to the Iraqi prime minister, elected Iraqi prime minister under a constitution the British had themselves put in, and said to him, we're landing troops in Basra. And the, the, the Iraqi prime minister said, but under the terms of the treaty, you have to ask our permission. 
And we, we haven't even considered it, let alone decided to give you permission. He said, we're landing troops at Basra. We have to. This is World War II, whatever the problem was. We need to have this. And the Iraqis said, well, we, we're, you know, we're not so sure we want to let you land. And the British landed anyway. This, in British historiography, is called the Iraqi Revolt of 1941. And in fact, the Iraqis fought the British in 1941. Uh, they were defeated uh, overwhelmingly. Uh, after a relatively quick campaign, but it was the third time that the British had to fight their way into Iraq in uh, barely uh, 25 years. So the French had to fight their way into Syria three times. They bombarded Damascus in 1920. They bombarded Damascus in 1925-26. They had to bombard Damascus again in 1945. The British had to fight their way into Iraq three different times in 25 years during the interwar period. Um, so this is a little of the background uh, of Iraqi, Iraqi resistance to occupation. I'm not going to go through all the details of, uh, of uh, what happened thereafter, but let me just stress that throughout this period, there were two overriding issues for Iraqis uh, throughout the, 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 the period from World War I really through the 1950s or 1960s. The first was occupation the imposition of foreign military bases on Iraqi soil against the will of the Iraqi people. The British had a huge military base. It had Baniya to the west of um, uh, air bases, actually, mainly in Iraq, uh, to the west of Baghdad and along the pipeline running over to Jordan, which were central to British strategic thinking in the interwar period. Um, and uh, the British basically said, you have no choice. You're going to have these bases on your soil whether you want them or not. And in fact, these were the bases through which the British reconquered Iraq in 1941. This was a contentious issue throughout the Middle East. Um, European powers had forced their way into these countries starting in the 1830s in Algeria, 1880s in Egypt and Tunisia and so forth. Um, and after World War I, most of the rest of the Arab world was occupied. During the interwar period, there was a succession of bloody revolts all over the Middle East against foreign military bases. Um, there was a revolt in Libya throughout the 20s and the 30s, a constant war against the Italians. Uh, Egypt, there was a revolt in 1919, after which the British were forced to concede some elements of independence to Egypt in 1922. I've mentioned the Syrian revolt of 1925-1926, during which the French lost control of most of the major cities. And the French responded to this with a typical expedient. They just bombed the cities that had thrown their forces out. So in Damascus, they bombed the city twice, killing in one bombing about 700 civilians and in another bombing 1,000 civilians. The city of Hama, when it expelled their forces, they bombed, killing several hundred civilians. And finally, with the use of overwhelming power, um, these revolts were put down, as was the revolt in Palestine in 1936, and as were the Iraqi revolts that I have mentioned. The main focus of these revolts was foreign military occupation and bases. And it wasn't until the 1958 revolution that the British military presence in Iraq was finally ended. It wasn't until 1954 that the British military presence in uh, Egypt was finally ended. Uh, it wasn't until, as you heard, uh, even after that, that the British military presence in other parts of the Gulf ended. So this is not ancient history. The entire adult elites, people, you know, you guys are young, people my age and older, in their 50s and older, all of them remember when foreign troops were on Arab soil against the will of the people. This is not, you know, ancient history. This is not, you know, uh, Hammurabi and, uh, and uh, uh, the Abraham and Ur. This is like, I remember it. And everybody in every, the elite of every Arab country remembers what it was like for the Algerians to force the French out uh, or, or Egypt to force the British out. Um, 
The second thing that has obsessed Iraqis and obsessed people throughout the Middle East is the question of oil. Oil was first commercially exploited in the Middle East in Iran in 1901 with a concession to a man named Darcy. And it became crucial to the British very soon thereafter when the British fleet, parts of the British fleet shifted over to oil um, from coal. And so suddenly, instead of being dependent on a, on a, a raw material which could be found in Britain, uh, the Royal Navy, the, the main tool of the British Empire, was dependent on a, on a raw material that was only found outside of Britain and outside the limits, by and large, of the British Empire. So Iran and uh, Middle Eastern oil became vital, absolutely vital, to British global hegemony. And we we're talking about the United States of the period. In other words, the hegemon, not unchallenged, not unipolar, but nevertheless the most powerful state of its time. And so this was very important to the British, but it was also important to people in the region. Now, Iraq was known to have oil. Iraq had had oil of some sort bubbling to the surface in pits since antiquity. Um, but it was only discovered in commercial quantities in the 1920s. Thereafter, pumping began under, uh, uh, through a pipeline to Haifa uh, in Palestine. Uh, and uh, it was controlled, of course, by a British company, the Iraq Petroleum Company, as was I Iranian oil. Uh, production by other British companies, um, as was Bahraini oil production. In fact, the entire production of the Middle East in the interwar period, the entire oil production of the Middle East was controlled by British companies. Um, this was, in a sense, the prize uh, for the British, one of the prizes anyway, of World War I. It was only in 1933 that Saudi Arabia signed a deal with American oil companies. Uh, commercial production didn't begin until well after World War II, however. Iraq was thus one of the two main uh, oil-producing countries in the Middle East through the 1950s. Iran was the other one. Um, the British controlled everything. They controlled the level of production, production quotas. They controlled price. They controlled Iraq's share of the revenue for oil. They controlled who worked there. They, 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 they gave salaries that they chose to British officials. So British officials got huge fat salaries, villas. All of this was at the expense of the Iraqi oil company. Iraqis were paid peanuts. Um, it was a colonial situation. Iraqi oil was not under the control of the Iraqi people. It was only in 1958 with the revolution of Abdul Karim Qasim that British forces were kicked out and that Iraq began to wrest control of Iraqi oil from the British. But Qasim, in the end, never did nationalize um, the oil, uh, Iraqi oil industry. Uh, and the British maintained their special position in Iraq until after the next revolution of 1963, in which, as, as Professor Yaoub told you, uh, Abdelkarim Qasim was overthrown. Um, and it's interesting, what was at work here was a little American-British rivalry. Even though the United States was worried about the Soviet Union, worried about the Iraqi Communist Party, it was also worried about getting a cut of Iraqi oil. And this is part of the American plotting uh, against Qasim, because Qasim, in the end, uh, had proved soft on the British. And the Americans were looking for somebody who would be hard on the British and give them a cut of Iraqi oil. It didn't work out that way. In the 60s, um, Iraq finally nationalized its oil industry, was one of the founding members of OPEC and came to fully control its own oil production. I should point out that some of the most sophisticated uh, and, and technically adept uh, uh, people in the entire oil industry in the Middle East are Iraqis. So, to conclude, given this background, what can we foresee in Iraq after the war ends? Um, I would suggest, I, I have three conclusions, and uh, th three points and a final conclusion. My first point is at the end of this war, may not be as clear-cut as its beginning. 
In other words, um, it may be that there will be a day when somebody will say this war is over, but it may not end quite so clearly uh, as you would maybe, as we were certainly led to believe with, you know, masked, masked legions of people walking down the major avenues of Baghdad and people throwing them kisses and, and so forth. That is not going to happen, I would guess. Indeed, it may be that some forms of resistance will continue for, for quite a while um, in, in corners of Iraq. That's the first thing that I would suggest. The second thing I would suggest is that an enormous amount depends on what happens in Washington, D.C. and what happens in New York at the United Nations. If the, 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 if the, the neoconservative hawks win this battle over the post-war future of Iraq, as they have won most battles in Washington since September 11th of 2001, there will be a longer military occupation. There will be much more in, intrusive American interference in Iraqi politics. There will be the imposition of people whom these neoconservatives have come to love and cherish and pay um, through the Pentagon's uh, unlimited slush funds. And this, in turn, I would suggest, may lead to greater Iraqi resistance. If the neocons lose, however, if the uh, occupation is shorter, if there is less interference, if people who have absolutely no credibility with the Iraqis are kept out of Iraqi politics and some means is de developed, either through the United Nations or otherwise, for a rapid transition to an Iraqi uh, 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 government that would really be fully independent, then there would be a very diff different outcome and there might be much less resistance to this process. A lot, therefore, depends on what happens, I repeat, in Washington and, and New York. Uh, w w what Prime Minister Blair will be saying to the President in their meeting in Belfast, what will, what will come of this thereafter when the President goes back and the various people try and pull him one way or another, as has happened on all of these issues, will really determine a great deal. Thirdly, what the United States does with Iraqi oil will be extremely important to the, not just the end game of this war, how it ends, what kind of resistance there will be, but how this war will be interpreted by everybody in years to come. And I'm not talking about the made-for-television fantasy that the Pravda and Izvestia of the late of the 21st century, uh, Fox and CNN, are putting on for you. I'm talking about reality what really happens in the world, what everybody else in the United States, except those people who are the dupes of American television and Victoria Clark and Ari Fleischer pulling our strings. Um, any of you see the movie Chicago? Yeah. Remember that? That's exactly what's happening. Um, and it's Ari, Ari Fleischer and Victoria Clark and a few other really geniuses in public relations who are pulling our strings and jerking us all around. Um, in reality, what happens with Iraqi oil will be vitally important to how this war is seen. At the moment, under the Oil for Food program, Iraqi oil revenues go entirely to the United Nations and can only be spent with the approval of the Security Council. If the United States takes, unilaterally, takes control of Iraqi oil, um, as it said it will take control of pretty much everything else in Iraq for at least a, a certain period, um, if it freezes out the United Nations, if it gives contracts only to American companies, such, and if it completely controls what happens to Iraqi oil, production levels, um, 
price, and so on and so forth. And if you read carefully the news that's coming out of the, the free press in the free world, I mean the British press and the French press and so on, the real investigative press, which actually writes about, you know, digs under and looks at the companies that are actually doing things, who owns them, Halliburton this, Shell that, Condoleezza Rice this, Dick Cheney that, the kind of things that you're probably not seeing uh, on CNN and Fox. Um, if, in fact, that is the way things go, there will be a strong reaction, not only in Iraq, but in the entire Middle East. If, on the other hand, there is some form of international control, some sharing of the contracts, some, uh, and, and, and most importantly, a rapid handover to Iraqi control of Iraqi oil re resources, then there will be an entire, not only an entirely different outcome, I would suggest, but there will be an entirely different interpretation on this war. Some of the harshest critics of this war will be disarmed, will prove to be wrong, and it will turn out that this really was a war in which the United States didn't try and take over Iraqi oil resources, didn't try and uh, impose certain things on the Iraqi people. We shall see. I suggest, therefore, in conclusion, that the post-war may be much more complex and much, much more difficult than the war itself. Um, this is not a hindsight. I said this in a published article before the war started. So, you know, I, I, I saw this. I, I believe this was the case all, all along. Um, uh, United States at its peril will ignore Iraqi nationalism, will ignore Iraqi resentment of foreign military occupation, and will ignore uh, uh, the Iraqi people's desire to control their own oil resources. There are smart people in the government who are warning that we must not do this. Um, the question is, will they be overridden as they were overridden before? Um, if this happens, it will feed the possibility of resistance to what will come to be seen as a, as a hated foreign military occupation. And uh, this occupation, sooner or later, will meet the fate of the British and French military occupations of Iraq and other parts of the Arab world. Thank you very much.